What frightens us, friends? I could list a number of things that frighten Christians at the present time. So could the Apostle Paul as he writes to the church at Philippi. You will be very mindful of things that frighten you. When you look at the world, perhaps even just looking at Victoria or Bendigo. What frightens Christians? I mean, you know the list. Is it societal and political changes? A legislative agenda that limits freedom of conscience? Perhaps we're frightened of opposition that comes to us personally or perhaps to our children? What frightens us? Philippians 1 verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What frightens us? In this part of the letter, the Apostle Paul doesn't go into detail. We don't even know much about the opponents that he mentions here. And he's not trying to identify a list. Paul is not concerned with identifying a list of things that we could share around the campfire of church camp to kind of scare one another and lose sleep over. Well, have you heard the government's going to do this? Have you heard there's opposition coming from this? Paul is not trying to even identify the list. He doesn't go into that list. He doesn't go into detail. It's not about identifying a list. It's about identifying what's going on in our hearts. To whatever happens, how do our hearts respond to that? What are our knee-jerk reactions? What are our gut instincts? What are... What is the response of my mouth? And it's not so much asking, Paul is not so much asking what frightens us here. It's more about asking, why are you frightened? For whatever happens, Paul says, we're not frightened if we live as citizens of the gospel. Look at verse 27 again. You've got it open in front of you, I do hope. He says, in the ESV we, we read it, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now the NIV translation has it as, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. ESV we read only. It's, it's the, the point of the, the passage is, there should be nothing else that distracts us. Nothing else that distracts us now from living 
in a way that is now shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in a world that Paul lives in, and the world we live in, we know there are things that distract us, don't we? There are things that distract us from living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The imperative in this passage is live as citizens. That's what it functionally, effectively means. Live as citizens of the gospel. And Paul writes to a church at Philippi who understand this language because it's very much part of the fabric of who they are. In fact, I'll put it to you, it's very much part of the fabric of who we are. I know we as Christians, and if you are born and bred in Australia, now technically I wasn't born in Australia, but I'm bred in Australia, we Australians find great pride swells in our hearts when we hear the word Australian. When Paul writes the Philippians and says, live as citizens of the gospel, he's picking up language that they would take pride in. Remember, friends, it's a Roman colony established by veterans of the Roman army who have fought and died for Rome. This is their place. This is their town. They have privileges of less taxes because they're a Roman colony. So Paul says, live as citizens. And their ears picking up and go, yes, I'll live as a citizen of heaven, Paul writes. What is the biggest insult you can give an Australian? We're a diverse bunch. But if you want to be Aussie, what's the biggest insult you can give Australian? Is to say, hey mate, that's un-Australian. Isn't it? To call that someone's un-Australianness. You're not living as if you're an Aussie. That's un-Australian. Paul is saying, we now get to live as citizens of heaven. We now get to live as citizens of the place that where we have all our safety, all our joy, all our pleasure in store for us. A citizen of the gospel lives in a temporary way in this life. It's like a backpacker in a foreign land. When you're backpacking, if you've ever done that, you, you, you respect the culture, you live there. For sure, you might even try and learn the language. But you belong to somewhere else. You still call heaven your home. And so Paul writes for us, this is the way of life now for the Christian. Many people see this passage that we're in today as the thesis statement, the key passage of this letter. That it picks up themes that are in the rest of the letter and it picks up themes at the start of the letter and brings them together. In fact, you'll see this. You'll read this passage today, you'll hear this sermon and you'll feel like, didn't Russ preach this already? Because there are things here that are before and after it. Citizens of the gospel appears a few times in this letter because Paul says it's so important and it's the thing that we get distracted by. Why has Paul got to say... Only now, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Because friends, what do we get distracted by? We don't let it be worthy of the gospel. Sometimes we don't even listen to the gospel in the moment we need to. We're distracted by something else. I feel this. I, I feel this. Every week, I, I pour in 8 to 16 hours, depending on the week, into it. I get half an hour. I get half an hour with maybe your full attention and then I worry about me marking it up and not being clear enough and communicating well enough we get half an hour to hear God's word preached maybe we get to 
see a group happen during the week for you as well. But it's not a lot of time. And we live in a world with a lot of distraction. And Paul would plead with them, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. The word worthy here carries with it by its very definition something that's worth its weight in gold. It's worth it. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is worth it, friends. Now, what is happening in our hearts right now? We automatically default to get distracted by other things we think, well, just at this time. Yes, I know the gospel's worth it, but at this time I've got other things that are worth it in my mind, other things that are worthy of my attention right now. And we automatically, subconsciously evaluate those things. I know the gospel's important when I die, but it's not so much worth it now. It's not the same weight of importance. The gospel will be really important when I'm dying in my dream death at 92 years old, in my bed in a nursing home. We heard this last week. Then the gospel will be important. But the worth of the gospel now, well, I've got other things important in my life. I've got career opportunities and I've got all sorts of things happening for me. Perhaps I've got sufferings and frustrations that I don't think the gospel really speaks to. We just don't see it as as weighty and worthy. But Paul says it's actually our life ought to match the weight of worth the gospel is. And he gives detail to that. What does that look like? Two things. Firstly, standing firm. Now, standing firm is a pretty basic concept, but he has to emphasize it because we easily don't. I easily don't. We don't stand firm. And the second one is, how are we going to stand firm? Because that's hard. Standing firm by yourself on something. If you are the only person in a crowd that believes something, is convinced of something, is convicted of something, if you are the only person in your school or workplace or family that believes the gospel, standing firm is hard. What do you need to stand firm? Secondly, one another. You actually need one another. As a preacher of the 20th century, his name is Martin Lloyd-Jones, right? And um, Martin Lloyd-Jones was Welsh. And as he preached in Wales, he used to see uh, people jump on the train every Sunday to go to the beach, and, um, yeah, it's beach life in Wales, which is not Australian beach life, but, you know, it's what you got when you live in Wales, I guess. And, um, and, and he would preach, he would say, look, the beach is an enjoyable place. It's part of God's common grace that he gives us all. But when you're dying in your deathbed, you won't find comfort from going to the beach. You will not find your safety there at the beach. You'll find it by going to Christ. And you go to Christ with one another. We need to stand firm when there is much that will move us away. And we need to stand side by side together for there is much to pull us apart. Both of those things are forces in your life. There are two forces in your life that will face you as opposition. And you don't see it. Because we think of opposition as the person who's against me. And we're going to look at that in a moment. But the first point of opposition for the Christian person, 
What does Satan want most of all? He wants firstly for you to move away from the gospel. That's what he wants first of all. For you to say, yeah, I don't, I can't, I don't really, can I really find my worth in that? Can I really trust it? Is it really that worth it? Firstly, he wants you to do that. The second thing, he wants you to pull apart from others who want to encourage you in the gospel. Well, I don't like them as much as I'd like to. They're, not, oh, they're pretty ordinary people. And so we find those two things happening. They're the two points of opposition we first face. And it's in our hearts. Standing firm and standing firm together. But then, of course, comes the opposition from the outside, verse 28. We see it in verse 28, where Paul writes, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and from God. Paul speaks of these opponents. And you can see, what, opponent, what does opposition to the gospel look like? Well, we've got the whole Bible, the New Testament shows us a picture of it. The Old Testament shows us a picture of it. We read in Exodus 14. What did opposition to God's people look like in Exodus 14? We read it earlier. What did opposition to God's people look like? A whole nation with a whole army of chariots, 600 select chariots plus the others, who come against God's people who are all they have as they are stuck between the water, the sea, and Pharaoh's army, all they have is God. And in that opposition, it's Moses who has to get up and preach another sermon. Moses, the preacher, who leads God's people. And how does Moses lead God's people, by the way? Through his personality? No. In fact, Moses probably wasn't the most charismatic person around. He says of himself, he wasn't even a very good preacher. How does Moses lead God's people? Through his word. Through proclaiming his word. So Moses gets up where God's people are facing the fears of the political alliances and the terrible things happening politically at a state level to them and all the oppression. What does Moses get up and do and say, I'm going to run for office. I'm going to run for office or form the United Nations. This will fix the, the Egypt problem. No, he doesn't. He preaches God's word. You don't need better politics. You need to see a bigger view of God. You don't need a political movement or a leader or to fundraise something to kind of twist the arm of government in certain directions. You need to look to God, friends. He's God. He's not surprised, he's not shocked, and he is not frightened. And so Moses starts and preaches this. He says this, we read it. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. Does that sound familiar? I think we just read this somewhere. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Now they're all looking around going, um, uh, I'm not sure you noticed, but there's a sea there and there's an army there. Ah. Uh, Salvation of the Lord? See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. That, I think, if I was standing in their sandals beside that sea, would be very hard to believe. We won't see them again. Um... 
we, we pretty much left and we didn't see them and now we're seeing them again. N- not again, again. This is our trouble. We, we have trouble believing God's word. So when Paul writes, you don't need to be frightened, we go, well, actually, I am and I'm going to be. Because we don't believe that we don't need to be frightened. And then we stir each other up to be frightened. There are whole organisations, even Christian organisations, that are designed to get their funding by distributing newsletters to make you frightened of what's going to happen next. I would like those Christian organisations to speak of Christ. (laughs) Look to Christ. And when Paul speaks to these opponents, notice how he speaks to them. Paul doesn't write about opponents that oppose you because you got nasty with them. Notice that? I think sometimes we in the Christian world, we get opponents, but we get opponents because we got nasty with people. He's not talking about those people who don't like you because you have been unlikable. It's not because of your personality they oppose us. Paul puts these opponents in the category of frightening. And he says they oppose us because they actually oppose Christ. In verse 30 he says, We are engaged in the same conflict here particularly speaking about him, but also him in the conflict of the gospel that he has because he is imitating Christ. In Philippians 3.17, move to chapter 3, verse 17, we see a picture of what opponents could look like. Chapter 3, verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, same language as chapter 1. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, in other words, they live just for this world, the money they can make, the stuff they can have, the pleasures they can enjoy. They glory in their shame, so we start redefining sin. Evil becomes good and good becomes evil. And their minds are set on earthly things. The mindset is totally focused on earth. All I can see is what I get out of living here. Life is for me to be rich and enjoy and make money and make plans and make my own destiny. That is the life of those who oppose God. And because they oppose God, they oppose us. When you became a Christian, I'm speaking to the Christians in the room, not everyone is yet perhaps, but when you became a Christian, brother, sister, you signed up for suffering. I think sometimes that shocks us, surprises us, makes us angry. When suffering comes, we get angry. First, we get angry with the opponents in the world and we lash out. 
Why do we lash out so much online, face to face? We lash out because we're freaking out. Why do we freak out so much? We freak out because we're, well, we're, we're losing faith in the one who's really in control. Hear Jesus' words. It's all Jesus' word, but just hear Matthew 5. Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, get this, on my account. Friends, have you ever had evil uttered falsely against you? See, I think in Australia we haven't really had the physical persecution. But Jesus gives us all categories of opposition here. You could be in the workplace and someone constructs the most elaborate lie about you because they know you're a Christian or there's some way they want to get you or attack you or take you. And, and that comes for you. Do you know what it feels like to be falsely accused of something? Simply because you're of Christ. You're a Christian. We face opposition for identifying with Christ. And Paul writes, and now is the opportunity to stand firm side by side. For, third and last point, we have been given salvation with suffering. This is the bit that throws us a bit. We're not ready for this. But have a look at verses 29 to 30. We get two gifts as a Christian. Do you want to see what they are? Two big gifts. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Two gifts. Do you see them? Salvation and suffering. Oh, we do not think of it that way, do we? Not here in the West. We speak about one day Christian persecution is going to get harder. One day the suffering is going to come. It's really going to come. It's really going to come. It's really going to grow. And it will perhaps in the West. But let me tell you, it's been happening for generations in the majority Christian world. The, the part of the world that I happen to know aside from Australia is Africa. And I have friends in Africa who live in the borders region, the region between the Muslim majority north and the Christian majority south. And that is a place where if you get on a bus, you don't know if you get to the end of your destination. You see your daughters on a bus, go to school, you see your daughters again. That is a place for the sake of Christ, you suffer persecution. It's been happening for generations. The tribulation is here. But for us, we haven't faced the physical persecution, but we do face for the sake of Christ, and increasingly so for the sake of Christ, we will be maligned. Look, you can see it in the language of the day. If you're looking for a group of people who are hurting people because they have certain views, if you're looking for a group of people that are responsible for the way people feel about their life, who do you blame? It's the church. 
It's Christians. And just before we say, because this is often said, oh, I, I'm, I'm not part of the church, I'm a Christian, I'm just kind of doing my own thing. I'm not that kind of Christian. You own the name of Christ, you own the one who says this in his word. The church is being blamed. The name of Christ is being dragged through and maligned with all sorts of reasons to blame. Because we hold certain views about human design, identity and flourishing. We're not going to move from those things. We need to encourage you to the side by side. But this is our world and it's increasingly so. And we need to prepare for it. Now, how do we get prepared for it? Not by reading all the news we can, having all the counter-arguments necessarily. There'll be a place for that. But to be prepared, friends, is to pray and rely on our God. It's to, it's to do what Moses preaches. Look to our hope. He runs the universe, friends. To him, our galaxy is like a council shire. Christians have been given the gift of suffering. On most church websites, you'll see these days, it'll have a section about us, our story. Our, our church website has that. So you can know, you know, we're not weird, we didn't come from nowhere, we're not a cult, has our story. Uh, most of it will have something like, you know, we started in a lounge room and now we're really large and successful and so forth, right? I'm not trying to caricature, it just is a common story. If you looked up the Philippian church website, what would it say for our story? It would say, we're a church in Acts 16, you can look it up, our story, that started in suffering. We were planted in suffering. We weren't planted because we got a bunch of hipsters together and we're all cool and slick. I once saw a church website in Melbourne that said, we are a stylish church because Melbourne is a stylish city. And the pastor wore a vest because an American pastor wore a vest. It was all about style. No, no, you won't find that for the Philippian church, nor the Thessalonian church. You won't find it for the Corinthians. You won't find it for the Romans. Not those church websites, if they had websites. It would be, we were planted in suffering. Because we have been given salvation and suffering. The story of Christianity is the story of suffering, isn't it? It's the story of rejection from family and friends, the story of being a loser at work, the story of loss in the public space, and of course it is the story of the cross. Central to our salvation and central to our suffering is the true and gritty story of the cross, where the justice and mercy of God meet, that's our story. Christianity has always had opponents because Jesus Christ has always had opponents. And we of all people ought to know that. Friends, I think we have an innate desire to be liked. I understand that. No one wants to be disliked. I don't. But we see in Philippians, in this letter, 
and what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven where you're a citizen. For they persecuted the prophets before you. They'll persecute you. Indeed, Paul writes to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Opposition to Christians in this way can be frightening. But Paul writes this, the opposition is not a sign of our end. See, that's the world story, isn't it? The world story is this, we've worked it out. We know what we can say to get rid of Christianity. We know what we can do, we can, we can bring these laws in and it puts pressure down and it means people won't want to be Christians. We'll, Finally have a day where we're free of religion, we're free of Christianity, free of the church. And the world thinks that by design, opposition will actually see our destruction. Oh, they haven't read much history, have they? (laughs) I say, friends, have you even read? Jesus says that often. Have you read? Have you read? Look, you could read church history, which is where you want to go, read the Bible, just try it, you know, my shout over a cup of coffee, but just read history, like just find a history book, find a history book on Europe, find a history book on what we know as the Middle East, find a history book on anywhere where you see the God of the Bible and his people. And what happens when opposition comes for those people? Sometimes they suffer greatly. Are they destroyed? No. They grow. It confounds the world. We try to kill these people and then there's more of them. It's like cockroaches. They're all through Rome and then they're growing. Next thing you know, some of them are senators. Goodness me. Next there's the emperor. What in the world? So they multiply. Yes, because they multiply disciples. No. Suffering doesn't see the destruction of the church. What does Paul say? We don't need to be frightened, verse 28. In anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Instead of freaking out and lashing out when we see opposition, which is often our reaction, isn't it? Let's be honest. We freak out and lash out, either online or in person. Instead of freaking out and lashing out, you know what we get to do? We get to smile with love and return and say... I love you, I'm not going to pray for you. And the world just gets fritzed out by that toilet. We do not understand. How can a suffering people respond with love? How can a suffering people respond like that? Um, I've got two words for you. Jesus Christ. That's how. That's how. We are not frightened. Because we belong to Jesus. Friends, you might be thinking, I could still be frightened tomorrow. Yes, I could. Let me admit, I can. I could still be frightened tomorrow. But here's what we get to see right now. For today and for tomorrow. See, when we become frightened and we react, we freak out and lash out. In that moment, we're forgetting something. We're forgetting that we belong to Jesus and Jesus wins. See, we don't just read history. 
we read future history. And as we live as gospel citizens of our future heavenly citizenship, we stand side by side. And as we do that, that's actually a sign of the enemy's destruction. Because such power to stand firm under persecution, slander, false accusation, such power is not natural to us. It's not natural to me. It can only be supernatural. And that sort of power brings churches together in the first place. As a church walks with Christ and with one another, side by side, in the face of opposition, we are now not frightened because we have Jesus. And Jesus does change everything, friends. He suffered for our salvation. Because, get this, while you and I were still in opposition to him, he died for us. We were the ones in opposition. We were enemies. Whilst we were still enemies, whilst we were still in opposition, Christ died for us. And now we can pray that we'll make disciples, friends, in this church who don't freak out. It's a great vision statement, isn't it? We make disciple makers who don't freak out. But it's true. We make disciple makers who do not need to be frightened who don't need to freak out nor lash out, but get to love even our enemies. Now, I feel like someone told us to do that too. You might know who that was. We love our enemies now because Jesus tells us to, because we can love them. This is the opportunity before us. We've been given one another. Think on this, a church standing firm together, a church standing firm together side by side, be that in gathered worship, over a spit roast, even over some trivia for fun. A church standing together has something to say. But a church that is scattered from each other because of sin, pulls away from each other, has nothing left powerful to say. Because that doesn't mean anything. Individuals in the world increasingly will find isolated from the church have not much to say. But when you get a group of people together, it has power and its plausibility. I can post this online this week if you'd like. Can't go into it now. But Sam Chan wrote a great book about evangelism in the West, in Australia. If your friend meets you, and they say you have weird and wacky ideas and you're a Christian, it's not plausible to them. But if they meet you and your Christian friends, and we call that the church, it's much more plausible to them. The plausibility structures of Christian belief is important for us, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's standing side by side. And our world, I think, are actually the frightened ones. Do you know your family and friends who perhaps are against Christ bring a lot of bravado to that, don't they? People say things like, I don't care. I don't care what's going to happen when I die. Really? Because I visit a lot of deathbeds. People who've said that all their life. And people really do care. Before they step into eternity, into the nothing they've always thought was there, 
they feel like there's something and they fear. People are frightened, friends. Friends, people are genuinely frightened. Old people, young people, people are frightened. Which is why they're freaking out. Which is why they're lashing out. And they're lashing out with all sorts of levers they're trying to pull. Make this law, oppose this, do this. People are frightened and they need the gospel. This is actually their biggest need. They need the gospel. They need our love and our loving patience to prayerfully... Let me tell you how Jesus helps me not be frightened in a world that is full of fear. Because a world gripped by tragedy and loss needs to know safety and salvation in Christ. Even a salvation that has joy and suffering. We should pray for them, shouldn't we? We should pray for one another that we can stand side by side as we sing and then turn to the table of the Lord's Supper. When we sing, the children and the leaders of Kids Church and Creche will join us and we'll be side by side in this celebration of the gospel. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your salvation. Thank you for grace that sustains us even through suffering and through particularly opposition. We forget, Lord, and so we need reminding. That's why we need your word in front of us each day. It's why we need to hear your word preached into our hearts for the week ahead. For we will face moments when the opposition comes for us, be that a news headline that threatens to take away certain privileges we've enjoyed, by a law that is made that certain, gives us certain anxiety. Perhaps it's our family members who mock us for getting to church on Sunday or get frustrated with us because we're not at family dinner when we're with the church family. Perhaps it's our friends who would be fair weather friends but when it comes down to the real nitty-gritty stuff of life would not be side by side with us. But Father, wherever the opposition comes, help us to remember Christ has come. He is with us to the end. Help us to remember we're engaged in the same conflict and we have that same risen Lord. So that when suffering rises and opposition rises, help us to see it is Jesus who rose again. All our hopes in him. And it's yet not us, not I, but through Christ in us that we can do this. And so we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.